Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Barbara Berglund Sokolov. If you like my podcasts, you might also like the Joy of History Book Club, a monthly event I host on Zoom. It's the traditional book club reimagined, part graduate seminar, part Parisian salon, inclusive, low stakes, and high reward. Everyone is welcome, whether or not you've read the book. Go to thejoyofhistory.com to learn more. Today, we'll be talking to Peter Richardson about his book, American Prophet, The Life and Work of Carrie McWilliams, first published by the University of Michigan Press in 2015 and reissued by the University of California Press with a foreword by Mike Davis in 2019. Peter Richardson teaches humanities and American studies at San Francisco State University In addition to American Prophet, he is the author of No Simple Highway, A Cultural History of the Grateful Dead, and A Bomb in Every Issue, How the Short, Unruly Life of Ramparts Magazine Changed America. He has a new book coming out with the University of California Press in January of 2022, Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson, and The Weird Road to Gonzo. Peter Richardson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Barbara. You're welcome. So you make the point in American Prophet that McWilliams was one of the most versatile, productive, and consequential American public intellectuals of the 20th century. Author and California State Librarian Emeritus Kevin Starr has called McWilliams the state's most astute political observer and quote, the single finest nonfiction writer on California ever. But McWilliams remains unknown to most readers today, not to mention the culture at large. Can you talk a little bit about how you got to know about Carrie McWilliams and how you decided to write this book? Sure. Yes. I uh, was teaching British literature in in Texas and um, took a leave of absence to work as an editor at the Public Policy Institute of California. And uh, when I started that position, I asked some people, including the president of the Institute and Peter Schrag, who at that time was the editorial page editor at the Sacramento Bee, what should I read? You know, what should I read by way of background for the for the work that I was about to do? And they said, oh, you should read everything by Carrie McWilliams. And I had never heard of Carrie McWilliams, which um, maybe wasn't so odd. I was born in 1959. He died in 1980. Um, And yet they were so emphatic about it. That is uh, David Lyon, the president, and Peter Schrag, the journalist, that I 
I realized that I, I had over, overlooked something that I really needed to fill in. So I began reading uh, everything I could get my hands on about Kerry McWilliams. And then I realized that there had been an anthology of his writing and he had written a memoir, but nobody had ever tried to uh, write a biography. Actually, no one had ever published a biography. Some people had started and got installed or, or you know, in, in some ways deflected from that from that project. So it looked like a real opening for me to write something about McWilliams. And at first I wanted to write an article and I pitched the article idea to somebody I knew and he rejected it. And I just thought, wow, huh, that's it. I'm going to double down and write a book. And uh, that started uh, years of uh, reading and writing uh, about Kerry McWilliams, which was quite a job because he was so broad. He published on so many topics. You know, he was so productive over over many decades. So just to become a fit reader of Kerry McWilliams, you know, I, I really had my work cut out for me. But that's how I got involved with it um, in conjunction with my work at the uh, Public Policy Institute of California. And then it sort of, you know, began taking over. And um, on the strength of that book, uh, I began teaching again at San Francisco State, but not British literature. I started teaching books on California culture. And so McWilliams was a great place to start for that. Super. So let's uh, dig into McWilliams' life. Can you say a little bit about um, his background and maybe some of the key events and people and experiences that led him to pursue the path that he did? Sure. Yeah. He, in his memoir, he, he did us this service of dividing his own life into five periods. So I'll just follow his cue on that. He was born, the first period, he was born in Steepmoat Springs, Colorado. His father was a businessman and later served in the state legislature and, and kind of a, kind of a big wheel in this, what was essentially a frontier town. This is, this is right about the time that Steamboat Springs was being developed as a ski resort, but his father was in cattle. And um, so he, it was really a kind of a Western town. And, uh, but his father experienced some, some business difficulties and then some, some mental difficulties and ended up um, in a, in a mental hospital where, yeah, I don't put this in the book, but I learned later, he probably committed suicide. So it was a very, you know, uh, very formative for McWilliams and, and a little bit, and very scary, really, to see his father fail in that way. And it, it left a kind of mark on him. He, he became very cerebral and, and intellectual and, and, and didn't really, um, really didn't, um, trust strong emotions, I think, which he associated with his with his father's madness, and that became that became a kind of intellectual tool for him. I think that helps explain why he was so able to tune into the key facts um, of of any uh, particular subject and kind of put the emotion aside. Um, but that he he enrolled at the University of Denver. He got kicked out as a freshman for excessive partying. And that led to the second part of his life. He, he goes to Los Angeles to uh, start over, really, stays with a relative. Uh, his mother now, by this time, his father is uh, no longer part of the 
you know, daily life and the family. They moved, so he and his mother moved to uh, Los Angeles, and he studies at USC, and he gets involved with writing there the, on the school paper and also the humor magazine. And, you know, he has two, two things in mind. On the one hand, he wants, he has the surge for success and stability and practicality. So he studies law. On the other hand, he really wants to be a kind of, uh, he wants to be a, a sort of a literary tastemaker, like his idol at that time, H.L. Uh, Mencken. His idol, in a way, in oddly, in uh, earlier in Colorado had been F. Scott Fitzgerald. He really saw himself as a kind of Ivy League swell, in a way, during the Jazz Age. But now um, Mencken becomes much, much more important to him. And then Mencken mentions the need for a good biography of Ambrose Bierce. And, you know, McWilliams is about 19 years old, and he decides to write that. He writes to his hero, Mencken, and says, I'm going to write that book, which he does. He finishes it when, when he's 21, and it's reviewed favorably in the New York Times. So he gets a very early start on this business, even as he's going through law school, and then he becomes a, a litigator for a downtown Los Angeles law firm. Uh, he, he sort of keeps, keeps it up on the, on the on literary criticism. He's meeting authors and publishing pieces um, along those lines. But it's, it's not really until the third phase of his career that his politics are, are formed, and they are quite different from Mitchell Mencken's. So during the 1930s, and partly because of his legal work, he becomes radicalized. He realizes that you know, the, the policies and practices that he sees around him are miserating people unnecessarily. He starts taking on cases to, to represent uh, farm workers, for example, in the 1930s. And that turns into his first bestseller, which is uh, Factories in the Field. But that radicalization that he experiences in the 30s is really kind of the the third phase. The fourth phase is um, when in the 1940s, when he really hits his peak and is writing almost a book a year during that period, as well as doing his legal work and, and legal activism. So he's, he seems to be everywhere in Los Angeles in the 1940s. He even serves in state government for a short time. And, um, and he, he also, that's when he really starts taking on enemies. Um, J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI opens a file on him. Um, the Associated Farmers decide that they don't like his history of uh, California farm labor. They go after him. The Los Angeles Times doesn't like him. And so that, that's really the period where he begins to um, sort of stand out in the landscape. Meanwhile, he's, he's publishing books and articles um, the articles are going into places like The Nation and The New Republic and other left-of-center outlets. And then the uh, final period really is when he joins The Nation magazine as an editor in the 1950s. And he pretty much drops all of his own book-length work. He's still writing a lot of articles, but he's also nurturing uh, a new generation of talent, people like Howard Zinn and Ralph Nader and Hunter Thompson, and many others. So, so he doesn't have much of a budget. 
Um, he has to trust his hunches and his, his editorial judgments. And he also has to overcome the, um, the sort of red scare of the 1950s, which targets the Nation magazine, which is left of center. So he has to shepherd the magazine, which is already almost 100 years old, through its most difficult decade during that time. So those, those are really the, the five different worlds, as he described them. And, uh, and how he sort of navigated his way through those worlds. Great. Um, let's dive in a little deeper to McWilliams' work, if you don't mind. Um, you've mentioned his incredible productivity and range as a writer, um, plus his day jobs. Can you provide kind of a general overview and a few highlights, um, maybe names of titles that listeners might recognize or want to check out after they've, they've listened to what, what you have to say. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I mentioned that, you know, he's the, the first book, he's, he's quite young. He hasn't even finished. He's, he's just getting started as a, as a lawyer. And that's the Ambrose Pierce biography. That, that has not been um, a, a book that that is recalled much now, but it, it's, it's kind of central to his formation in the sense that you can see that he's constructing a kind of lineage for himself that includes Ambrose Bierce and, and H.L. Mencken. But as I say, really, uh, Factories in the Field, which comes in 1939 and is a kind of culmination of, the, of these more radical uh, leftists. You know, H.L. Mencken was not a leftist at all. Uh, he was a very harsh critic of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for example, and the New Deal. Uh, McWilliams was not. So he shrugs off Mencken's influence, political influence. He still wants to be an editor and tastemaker like, like Mencken, but, but by now his, his politics are, are, are crystallizing. And he's definitely part of the, of the sort of New Deal movement and a little bit on the left edge of that movement. And so his farm labor history is quite critical of what he calls these factories in the field, which is a sort of corporate approach to farming. And, um, and that's, as I say, when he makes his first real enemies, when he suggests that there's something deeply wrong with the way, the way we farm in California. And um, so on the strength of that, he um, is encouraged to join the uh, uh, administration of Colbert Olson, which he serves only one term, 38 to 42. And by that time, by the time uh, he's replaced by Earl Warren, um, McWilliams has become a target of Earl Warren. When Earl Warren runs, he says, you know, the first thing I'm going to do when I win the governor's office is I'm going to fire Kerry McWilliams. That's what he tells all the um, growers out in the Central Valley, for example. And that's a kind of applause line for him. So his stature is, is definitely rising. But his own interests are kind of turning to some other topics, most notably um, racial and ethnic discrimination. And, you know, he's one of the first people to really stake out that territory, which only a few years before people were explaining inequality in, in America, racial and ethnic inequality as a kind of biological matter that, you know, that, that these different um, members of these different races were wired differently from each other. And that's why you get the inequalities that you get in society. Of course, he challenged that and um, started writing about um, 
you know, uh, the law against interracial marriage in, in California, which, which wasn't struck down until 1948. Um, he talked about the um, kind of discrimination that the Latino community in Los Angeles faced, even though they'd been there for generations. Um, they were still that they were still discriminated against quite systematically. Um, that wasn't really corrected, and some of it wasn't corrected until the 1960s and 70s, when you know they were, for example, they were uh, Latinos were underrepresented on grand juries, quite quite obviously. Uh, that wasn't challenged by by others actually until the 1970s, um, and there were a couple high profile cases that he that he held up and showed how the discrimination played out. One was a murder case called the Sleepy Lagoon murder case. And he led the, uh, the appeal effort, uh, not as a lawyer, but as a kind of um, organizer in the community. Uh, another was the Zoot Suit riots, famous riots that broke out in downtown Los Angeles that were really police. They were really not police riots, but military riots when sailors and Marines were um, clashing with, with uh, mostly Latino youths in and around Los Angeles. And those got woven into a book that he published in 1948 called North from Mexico. He also published a book on anti-Semitism. Um, he published a book called Prejudice, which um, completely took apart any arguments on behalf of the evacuation and internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans on the West Coast. And as I say, these books are coming out almost, almost one per year, and they were very consequential. For example, the, uh, the book about the Japanese internment uh, was cited four times the year it came out in a Supreme Court dissenting opinion. So they were really you know, reaching people, sometimes at the highest levels. And you know, they were written for general audiences, but but they were, they were authoritative enough for you know, Supreme Court justice to cite in a, in a dissenting opinion. And he also wrote two books about California in the 1940s. One is called Southern California, An Island on the Land, which is still quoted regularly, especially in the Los Angeles Times, as a kind of interpretive history of, of Southern California and Los Angeles in particular. And the other was called California, The Great Exception, that came out in the late 1940s. And both of them were very far, far-sighted. You know, they really, they really under, they showed what the basic issues were, not only about race and ethnicity and discrimination and the economy, but also uh, the environment, you know, the importance of water. I mean, one of, one of the chapters in Southern California country ended up directly inspiring the screenplay for the 1974 film Chinatown, which actually won the Oscar for Best Screenplay that year. And it, was a, it, it sort of was a sort of secret history of Los Angeles that became very popular. It's one of the finest films um, of its generation, finest Hollywood films of its generation. And uh, the screenwriter, Robert Town, was very clear his debt to Karen McWilliams. And I uh, came upon that correspondence between those two in doing the research for that book. And finally, he was, you know, he ended up inspiring his work on farm labor, ended up inspiring people like Cesar Chavez as well. Cesar Chavez considered uh, factories in the field a kind of part of his formal education. 
and he was another um, sort of, I wouldn't say disciple, that's too strong, but I mean, he was certainly a, a, kind, of, um, a kind of outspoken fan of Kerry McWilliams and his work. So, you know, there's more to it, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to sketch the breadth and depth of the work that he did. Um, just in this one decade, it's really pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it certainly is. Do you uh, have a favorite piece of McWilliams' writing? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, Southern California, this history holds up pretty well. Um, he's, you know, it's it's partly autobiographical in some ways. He talks about how much he hated Los Angeles when he arrived there from Colorado, but that he came to love it. Um, because of its just almost animal energy and exuberance, and he realized that for all of its um, for all of its spectacles, there was something really captivating. And he he said that it was a kind of ringside seat at the circus. So uh, along with others, I'm I'm a big fan of that book, which has been in print ever since it came out in 1946. Um, it's also you know he laughed. He he, he sort of said later in his um, in an oral biography that he, he had a lot to get off his chest when he came to Los Angeles and that that book was a, was had this kind of um, you know um, really helped him out in some ways to um, to express what he had to say about Los Angeles but I'm also a big fan of uh, the uh, prejudice book the book about the Japanese internment which unfortunately isn't I don't believe it is in print anymore. It's just, it's just amazing in this sort of um, not lawyerly way, but it has that kind of trenchant uh, argumentation where he just takes on all of the all of the people who were for uh, the evacuation internment and just demolishes their arguments one by one. That really kind of showed the power that he brought to his writing, which was very concise, not a lot of histrionics, not a lot of theatrics, but he just brought this kind of clarity and moral force also to, to his writing. I think prejudice is a really good example of that. Uh, I mean, you could almost pick any of them during this period. Um, many of them have, have continued to influence people who want to write about California, but it's it's amazing, Barbara, that so many people who sit down to write about California, they may not even know Kerry McWilliams when they start, but but once they discover him, they realize how many of their arguments he has he has sort of um, anticipated, and that you can't really you know uh, condescend to him the way you sometimes can to writers of the past. It's like, well, people in those days used to believe this, but now we know better. You can't really do that with McWilliams very much. And I mean, he, it's very humbling, really, for someone who wants to write originally and consequentially about California to come upon somebody like Carrie McWilliams, who I didn't discover until I was in my, in, in my 40s. You know? And that's why I wanted to do the book. It was like, how come I've never heard of this guy? This guy's amazing. Yeah, so... Um, you've titled the book American Prophet. Can you tell us about why you see McWilliams as an American prophet? I think you've just alluded a little to why, um, but I'd love to hear more about that. 
about what and what he was able to see um, that others were not. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question because, you know, the question always is, well, how is he, you know, how, how, how does he remain relevant? And that's what's amazing, how well his stuff holds up to repeated reading decades later. And I would say he was prophetic on a number of topics. One was, um, you know, we're very interested in food and farm labor now. A lot of activists sort of get involved with, with um, different kinds of efforts through their interest in food and farming and, and um, uh, you know, how we raise our food, how it's distributed and consumed. So he was, he was very much ahead of his time um, in that sense. And, and also, of course, his interest in labor. You know, who does this work? Um, are they being treated fairly? You know, he took a lot of heat for these positions and others, which I'll describe. Um, you know, he, he really kind of paid the wages of dissent. He's saying things in the 30s and 40s that are almost common sense now, especially if you're liberal or in any way left of center. It just seems obvious. But to say the things that he was saying in the 1930s and 1940s made him a real target for some very powerful actors and organizations um, during that period. So, so part of it is it's not just his prophetic uh, vision. It's also the courage that he brings to it. He didn't need to do this. You know, he was a very accomplished litigator. He could have, he could have lived very nicely and attended events and maybe noodled out an article occasionally. Um, but, but he really took up these causes of social justice and, and fought them sometimes in, in a very kind of um, lonely way, right? Because there weren't very many people that, that he could um, count on to support them, in part because they were being persecuted as well. So farm labor is one. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, racial and ethnic discrimination. You know, he was, he was raising those issues and making practical arguments and also offering solutions in the 1940s. And, you know, in, in some, some of those uh, solutions were implemented in the 40s. I mean, you get your first cases about schools desegregation in California in the late 40s. You also get, you know, people striking down um, laws against interracial marriage. And, 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 and he was uh, pilloried for that um, by members of the California state legislature uh, who claimed that he was running around the state promoting interracial marriage. I, he just was he was just saying I don't think we should have a law against it. Um, so that that was another issue that he um, spoke about very clearly and and uh, was was attacked for it. Um, of course, the 1950s with with McCarthyism. Um, you know, he spent most of that time, you know, trying to trying to tell people that that there was a kind of hysterical quality to that. And that people's lives and careers were being ruined for no for no good reason. Uh, that was that was another issue that I think Americans finally uh, they finally saw it his way. I mean, he described Richard Nixon um, in the late 1940s as a dapper little man with an astonishing capacity for petty malice. It took the the rest of the country, you know, a couple of decades to figure that out. So, you know, and the environment I've mentioned, you know, he was he was talking about issues of power. I mean, 
generating power, not political power, but, you know, electrical power, hydroelectric power. Um, he was talking about aridity and water in the West and why that was so important. And, you know, uh, he was writing about issues having to do with um, irrigation, especially on the massive scale that uh, California was undertaking um, during that period in the 50s and 60s. You could just really go down the list. Vietnam, Jim Crow. I mean, he, he, he had Vietnam. He had a habit of being right on the big issues time and time again and never really getting any credit for it. You know, I mean, people who make a living through writing eventually saw that his, you know, hey, this guy's, you know, this guy was an incredible stand-up guy and, um, and also an astonishing author. And so he eventually got his due, at least from people who understood how hard it is to do the work that he did. But, uh, you know, he took a lot of punishment, a uh, heck of a lot of punishment. And still, as you said at the top of the show, most people don't know who he is. And part of that is because he was a radical. And, you know, he had a lot of powerful enemies. So can you say a little bit about what motivated him to, you know, like you said, he had a very stable, lucrative uh, day job. You know, he didn't need to be engaged uh, in all of these uh, crusades and to be writing about all of these topics, um, much less, you know, where he found the time to write about all these topics. But what what drove him? Great question. I may, Maybe I should have covered off on this earlier. I'm glad we can go back to it because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about his father's um, collapse was he had a kind of fundamental choice when that happened. He could blame the way he saw it. He could blame his father or he could blame the system, um, the system that broke him. I mean, one of the things that broke him was at the end of World War I, the beef embargoes were, were um, abandoned and all this beef flooded the United States and it made his uh, business almost worthless. And so with that decline in his, in his uh, business fortunes, he also experienced you know, physical and mental decline and, invo- and leading up to a collapse on the floor of the state legislature. So when he looked at his father's experience, he thought, you can't trust the system. The system is not the solution. The system, especially free enterprise, right? which he considered kind of wild enterprise. It tore, it tore men's souls to pieces, essentially. And so from then on, he was very suspicious of the business community. And he also did not feel that the system was the, the solution. And that was reinforced in Los Angeles when he went to represent some farm workers who were engaged in, the orange pickers who were engaged in a strike in Orange County, mostly Latinos. And the judge said, it doesn't matter what you say, said this um, to McWilliams privately. It doesn't matter what your arguments are. You're going to lose this case. And McWilliams was like, wow, you know, I've, I've learned about all, all this stuff in law school. And it turns out in the real world, um, you know, there's these, there are these deep systemic injustices. And I think those injustices, which he linked to his father's decline, I think, um, were the ones that 
that motivated him increasingly over the course of the 1930s and 40s. And, um, you know, it came from a very strange place. Uh, I don't think when he got to Los Angeles, he was motivated by those issues. He wanted to be H.L. Mencken, you know, and this kind of literary tastemaker. And, um, you know, but by the end of the 30s, he, he had definitely joined the fight. And, um, and it was a fight for social, legal justice. You, um, you mentioned how he ran afoul of the Associated Farmers in California who labeled him, quote, agricultural pest number one, worse than the pear blight or the bull weevil. That's a quote that I've always loved. Um, can you uh, talk about some of his uh, adversaries and, and really what he endured um, for taking the stands that he did and, and how he withstood what was leveled at him? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it starts with the farm labor and, you know, he, he alienates the associated farmers, as you just mentioned, and they come up with a, a nice kind of <laughs> label for him. Um, and they were really mad at him when he was serving in government because he made it possible for um, farm workers to actually collect relief if wages weren't sufficiently high to live on. And they hated that. For them, that that was communism. You know, he didn't understand or support our system. And uh, of course, I think he understood it pretty well. And he was fighting to get uh, something like a minimum wage under which you, you know, you didn't have to go. You could, you could stay on what was then called relief. And so the growers hated him for that. And it was around this time, too, that the FBI opened a, a file on him that ran for hundreds of pages. They thought he was a member of the Communist Party. Um, he was not. And yet they kept him on what, what was then called the custodial detention list, which meant that he could be round up in case of national emergency. No charges, nothing. He was serving in state government at the time. So uh, finally, the U.S. Attorney General told um, Jared Verhoover that, you know, he couldn't keep that list, that it was unconstitutional. And uh, Hoover changed. He said, yes, sir. And he changed the name of the list to the security index. And he continued to keep it for decades to come. And he continued to keep um, McWilliams on the security index. Uh, even though they were pretty sure he was not a member of the Communist Party, which, by the way, was perfectly legal um, to be to be a member of the Communist Party. So there was a, a certain kind of uh, surveillance and harassment that came from uh, national security organizations. I, as I mentioned, he alienated, not really alienated, but, um, you know, Earl Warren was on his bad side probably for a little while. Although he later became a, a big fan of Earl Warren after Warren became Chief Justice, um, let's see. Oh, maybe one of his prime antagonists was uh, a state legislator named Jack Tenney, who chaired uh, a joint committee called the, which came to be known as the Tenney Committee. It was the Committee on Un-American Activities in California, and he called uh, McWilliams in and and um, quizzed him. Actually, it was an executive session, and, and that transcript has never been published, but it was fascinating because he wanted 
basically, he was the guy who said that McWilliams was running around California promoting interracial marriage. And but you know, by this time, McWilliams was a very experienced litigator, certainly knew how to handle himself during questioning. And uh, I think you know, any fair reading of that transcript would would lead us to to conclude that uh, McWilliams got the best of that one. Tenney eventually fell, much like much like McCarthy after him, under the weight of his own kind of crazy allegations. But um, for a while, Tenney was Tenney was um, a real antagonist. And then when McWilliams went back to New York and was leading the Nation magazine, of course, the Nation magazine attracted a lot of the same kind of criticism um, during the 1950s. And some of that criticism came from liberals. And probably the most prominent one to target McWilliams was Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the Harvard historian, um, who said that uh, McWilliams was the typhoid Mary of the left. He didn't carry the disease of communism, or he didn't see, he didn't have the disease or carry the disease of, com- of communism, but he spread it somehow. And um, so, you know, the shots were coming both from the right and from the left. And uh, it was just a lot to deal with. But McWilliams never dramatized, you know, the, uh, the things that he had to deal with. But he was very concerned about his friends, especially during the 1950s, and did what he could to support them. And there were, as I said earlier, there were many ruined lives and, and ruined careers, suicide from time to time. And, uh, you know, it, it really left its mark on him, I think, that experience. It was very harrowing that decade. And uh, by the time the 60s came along, no one was really reading the nation, um, especially young people. They were finding their heroes, not as figures of the old left like McWilliams, but, you know, the new left and, you know, figures like Che Guevara and others. It was a little bit more of a whiff of danger. And I'm not sure um, Williams got the respect that was that that should have been accorded to him during that period. But since the 1980s, actually, people have been holding up his career as a as a real model. I mean, I'm thinking of Kevin Starr now, the great California historian, Mike Davis, you know, um, and others. And you know, there have been awards given in his name, and so on. So. His critical fortunes have been really rising since his death in 1980, but but really it took a long people to come around to the incredible work that he did. Uh, What should listeners know about McWilliams, the man, Uh, and, you know, kind of some of his defining characteristics as, as a human being? Well, I mean, one of the things was, when, especially when, when he was in L.A., he had a lot of friends and he had a lot of fun. Uh, he had a wide range of friends. There was a, a little bit of glamour around it, too, because some of the things that he did politically, uh, you know, some of the activism that he undertook often involved Hollywood people or other kinds of celebrities. I mean, he would, you know, he met... Um, William Faulkner and, you know, ran around with, um, you know, famous architects even of the day, judges, lawyers, activists, labor people, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, he knew everybody. And that, of course, continued to be the case as he became editor of the Nation magazine. So, 
So he, you know, he got around a lot and he was very active. He was a member of a lot of groups and he was asked to speak a lot. So um, he wasn't much of a media person. He, he, he didn't have a spectacular media presence on the radio or television or anything like that. But um, he, he seemed to know everybody and seemed to be everywhere um, at, at his peak. Um, when he comes back to the nation, you know, he's fully consumed by that. He's just working hard, uh, <laughs> seemingly every day, just to put what he called to put out the paper. And, uh, and of course, that cut into his own his own writing. He doesn't publish a lot of books after that. And you know, his the circle of his friends begins to narrow a little bit. It, it mostly revolves around the magazine, and he doesn't have his friends aren't quite as glamorous maybe as they were in Los Angeles. He enjoyed a drink. Um, he had a kind of um, dry sense of humor, um, more a sense of irony maybe than a, than a sense of humor. And it comes out in his writing. Um, as I say, he was very cerebral. He worked out of his head a lot. Um, he didn't really always understand the passions of the day very well. I mean, he never really, for example, he never understood Nixon's appeal. He wasn't a very good handicapper of political races because he never really registered at the visceral level what other Americans were feeling. Um, I think that helped him as an analyst, but it, you know, and and helped him kind of zero in on on the fundamental issues. But it made him, um, it it, it handicapped him a little bit when it came to the passions of the day. so with Nixon, for example, he thought, I never totally understood why people liked Nixon or why they voted for him. He wasn't that hard to read. You know, he was obviously, you know, just kind of a list of strategies. He, he you know, he didn't seem like a, like an honest person or, a, or, a, you know, particularly a moral person. And um, he finally realized later in life through you know his own process of intellection, really, you know, it's not that it, it occurred to him, uh, you know, uh, through some sort of visceral sense. But he finally thought, "Oh my God, it's not that he fooled these people; they understood him all along. They felt like the times called for a bastard, and he fit the specifications. That's why they voted for him." So you know, it took him sometimes. Sometimes it took him a while to come around to these insights. Other times he was way out ahead of people in terms of analyzing, you know, the key issues. You do just a splendid job pointing out uh, McWilliams' wide influence. And one of the things that I was really struck by is that you uh, note that Patty Limerick, uh, you know, uh, noted historian of the American West has said that, you know, historians today are still playing catch up 30 years later with what McWilliams was writing in the in the 30s and 40s. Um, Can you talk a little more about his his influence? And, you know, some of this has been woven through already. But if there's anything else you want to highlight about, you know, how his impact was felt during his life and uh, and how it continues to be felt today. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Patty Limerick because she she doesn't mention uh, McWilliams explicitly in um, that early book, most famous book, um, 
Legacy of Conquest. Legacy of Conquest, right. And uh, I asked her about that. She said, I am so sorry that I didn't. You know, I learned so much from him. And later, I think she, she made it up a little bit. She gave some talks about him and how important his influence was on her. But I mean, you know, she, in many ways, really set a new direction for studies of the American West. And so that was one area that he, um, one area of influence that isn't really close to the surface and you'd have to look for it. Um, another one was in, um, you know, farm labor. I've mentioned that. A certain amount of influence maybe in the way we think about water. I mean, I mentioned the, uh, the direct influence on Chinatown. Um, I, he was a big influence on Kevin Starr. I mentioned him earlier, but, you know, let's take a minute to honor what Kevin did, you know, eight volumes of California history. And I don't think he wrote about anybody more than he wrote about Kerry McWilliams, whose politics did not square very well with Kevin's. And I think that's another sign that, you know, McWilliams was able to reach, you know, broadly across different um, segments, even of, even of um, the authors who, who wrote about California. Mike Davis, you know, has been very honest about um, McWilliams' influence over him. Um, Luis Valdez, who wrote um, um, Zoot Suit and, you know, was part of the Teatro Campesino and, uh, you know, the Diggers and, you know, was a, a Latino activist for a long time. He was um, linked to uh, the farm labor movement in the 60s and 70s. You know, he, he, he would tell you, he did tell me, that, uh, that McWilliams was a huge influence on Zoot Suit. So, you know, I mean, I don't know where to stop, but um, mm-hmm. there's so many, so many. And the, the weird thing is that, that these people that I just mentioned, they don't, their work doesn't really intersect very much, you know? It's a really broad panel of of people that that he influenced directly, and um, it's, you know the more the more you research the the more the more you turn up, and um, you know I try to do that with my students all the time, it, and it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, you really want to just stop when you get to a certain point in all of my classes on California and just say you got to know about this guy, Kerry McWilliams. Uh, that's hard to do um, because it takes a lot of explaining. But I hope that the book, at least for some people, will you know get that conversation going and get people to start assigning his work and talking about its influence, which you know ripples across the whole California scene really in the second half of the 20th century. You describe McWilliams as a, a public intellectual. Can you? Tell us um, kind of maybe how you define that term uh, and how McWilliams fits into it. And, you know, who, if anyone, would you compare him with, uh, you know, in, in the realm of being a public intellectual today? That's a great question. And, you know, I don't, I know people have gone around and around on the proper way to, to define what it is to be a public intellectual. And, you know, I don't have the a bulletproof definition, but I mean, it's, it should be somebody who addresses the public in real time. I think that's the most important thing is 
someone who's expressing, uh, uh, addressing the most important issues of the day in real time. And I think that excludes a lot of people who are thought of as being public intellectuals. Um, you know, I mean, I would distinguish them from pundits, for example. Um, and the other thing, to be an intellectual, you have to get it right. You know, you can't just be a, an opinion meister. And I think um, McWilliams meets both of those standards. Um, you have to write for the public. And for McWilliams, that meant, you know, writing for motivated general audiences. He did not cater to them. He did not oversimplify. He wrote clearly, uh, but, but he didn't cut corners the way a lot of people like to do to, to, to score points, you know, to, to hope, hope to get away with it, to, to win an argument. I mean, he really was more formidable in a way because, because the arguments, and I think this comes from his legal training, the arguments were very strong and he had the evidence at his fingertips and he knew how to put it together and present it. So, you know, that's part of being a public intellectual too, is writing for, not just for academics or specialists, but, but for, um, you know, writing in magazines and writing books that you could buy in a bookstore. I mean, at a minimum, that, that, that should be, you know, a characteristic of a, of a public intellectual. The other thing was this versatility, you know, his ability to, to write about so many topics. Another thing is the pickup. I mean, people were picking up what he wrote and using it, you know, using it for practical, political, and legal purposes. You know, I think that that's an important part of being a public intellectual. The versatility, I think, is really important. And this makes him hard to compare to, pe- to other people, um, even some of his peers, because there aren't very many people then or now that you can identify who could write a legal brief for a Supreme Court case, who could edit uh, a national magazine, weekly magazine, who could you know, uh, write literary criticism, who could write about politics and law and the environment and race and, you know, farm labor. It just, I mean, there, there just didn't seem to be anything beyond his reach. And to be able to do all of those things, I mean, you know, who would that be? I mean, you, it, it's not going to be Cornell West, I don't think, you know. Um, who's done a lot of great work, but I don't think has done all of the things that I just mentioned. Um, I don't think Noam Chomsky really has that kind of um, cachet, that kind of versatility, I should say. Um, I don't know. Maybe you know, Barbara, who, you, can, you can name some people who, you know, Gore Vidal, when did he write a legal brief? I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I can't really come up with any names other than the ones that you've tossed out uh, that might even be contenders. Uh, right. I mean, you know, Kevin, I think Kevin Starr is maybe a good example. He, I think Mike Davis, for example, is, is mm. uh, could be mentioned in the same breath. But I think even Mike would say, listen, you know, I didn't do the stuff that he did. I've done some of that stuff. Um, and he actually would defer to Kevin. Kevin, of course, writing all these great volumes, serving as a California state librarian. He ran for office. You know, he wrote for the San Francisco Examiner. And so he had some of that, some of that scope. But I mean, really, it's, it's, I think the, the, thing, the thing about McWilliams is 
you know, not only did he do it for a long time, but he did it, uh, you know, in all these different ways for that, for those decades. So what can, what can Americans and Californians today learn from McWilliams? You know, it, it really kind of breaks my heart that he's not as well known as I think he should be. And you think he should be, um, you know, how, how is he relevant to, um, to the 21st century? Yeah, I think, you know, I would start maybe, I don't know, uh, you know, this isn't the end of the answer, but I think one of the things that I learned from him is humility, right? I mean, wow, here's a person who that many decades ago was seeing these situations so clearly and writing about them so fearlessly that, uh, you know, and without, you know, a lot of... um, concern about the consequences for him personally. I mean, you know, he's not the only person who did that. Let's, let's be clear about that. But, but I, I think that tends to get lost in the discussion when we're looking at his career as if he didn't have to overcome, you know, a ferocious resistance from, from some of his personal and institutional uh, adversaries. So that's part of it. It's just his courage, the courage of his convictions. And, um, I say humility in a way, too, because, you know, we all think um, that what's happening now is unprecedented. There's a kind of, I'm sure you know this as a historian, but there's, there's a sense that a lot of people walk around with, including a lot of activists who think, you know, when they think about the past, they don't, it, it's kind of hard for them to take it seriously. It's sort of that's when people, you know, that's when there are all these problems. That's when people were stupid in a way, right? And so it's a reminder that there were people who were speaking much more originally and consequentially than we were on some of these same issues that long ago. So I think just intellectually, humility is a good thing. You know, arrogance keeps you from learning. And um, I think that was one of the things that, that I took away from reading about him. I think when you think about why he isn't better known, I, certainly his enemies have something to do with that. Certainly. The fact that he was a radical has something um, to do with that. He wasn't saying things to comfort people um, very often. You know, he was calling up some real bedrock issues. And, you know, this wasn't, the, you know, for example, water. One of the things that he said about water in California, and I mean, water is the key to power uh, anywhere where it's scarce. And, you know, he said, water isn't a problem in California. It's a code word for a hundred problems. And as we think about um, climate change today, we think about uh, power up here in Northern California, we think about PG&E, and he was writing about that back uh, in in the middle of the 20th century and writing about some of the problems that were inevitable, right? And not climate change as such, but, but the challenge of aridity and the kind of bare knuckle politics that, that goes with that. You know, we're, we're, we're still going to be dealing with that. We are dealing with that. And so, I mean, in these and other ways, and, and how, how, to reach, how to reach an audience. I mean, you mentioned um, Hunter Thompson at the top of the program. I mean, Hunter Thompson, I don't think, wrote um, as seriously and as consequentially in some ways as McWilliams did, but he's much better known. And part of that has to do with style. You know, he didn't write, you know, spectacularly, 
Um, and I think this is why he gets so much credit from other writers, people who know how hard it is to write so clearly and powerfully about the issues that he took on. Um, so he tends to get a lot of credit from people who write for a living. And now I think it's just time to broaden that out to people who, um, you know, can just appreciate his achievement and the scope of it um, on its own terms. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you uh, have mentioned Hunter Thompson, and I mentioned Hunter Thompson, and that you have a new book coming out about him. Can you um, tell us as we wrap up a little bit about that book and about how Thompson and McWilliams were connected? Great. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, you know, Thompson and Williams... Uh, Mick Williams, um, that, that's, that happened in the 1960s. Uh, Thompson was basically laboring in a remote vineyard. He was a freelance journalist. He was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he wrote to Thompson and said, listen, I need an assignment. And Mick Williams was pretty used to that because, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of resources. A typical payment for an article at that time was about $100. McWilliams said, I need the hundred, you know, give me something to write about. And McWilliams said, what about these um, motorcycle gangs that we're hearing so much about? And that led to uh, Thompson's article about the Hells Angels, which ran in the nation in 1965. And then on the strength of that article, um, he was offered book contracts and he signed one of them. A lot of them came from people that McWilliams knew. And Thompson signed one of those, wrote the book, it became his first bestseller, and kind of put him on the map, really for the first time. I mean, he's, he, you know, would continue to have to write to to earn a living. He was also he spent a lot of money, um, but he he would never be um, he would never be uh, he would be famous. Um, forever after that. I mean, he became even more famous in the, uh, over the course of the 70s. But um, that's how he met McWilliams. And he always had, one of his biographers said he was really the uh, only editor, McWilliams was, that Thompson had steadfastly admired through his whole career. He felt like, you know, put, putting an article in the nation under Kerry McWilliams was something that you could be really proud of. Uh, Thompson went on to work with uh, Warren Hinkle, who was famous for editing Ramparts magazine, and then helped Thompson birth gonzo journalism at Scanlon's magazine, which, which Hinkle also edited. And then, of course, Mc, uh, rather Thompson would go on to become even more famous writing for Rolling Stone magazine, which at that time was still in San Francisco. Uh, and his editor there was, was Jan Wenner. And that's really where he, uh, the gonzo journalism became famous, even though it was really birthed at Scanlon's magazine under, under Warren Hinkle. That magazine tanked, and Thompson then had to find a new outlet. And that became, that became Rolling Stone, which at that time was writing very high, later was described as the voice of its generation. It was a rock magazine, but it was always more than a music magazine. And Thompson was sort of their non-musical voice. And, um, you know, he, he, uh, he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The book came out in 1972, sort of a, a gonzo classic. I mean, it's described as nonfiction. It really is more like a novel. 
And um, the two major characters, for example, aren't real persons. <laughs> to me, that makes it a novel. And then he covered the 1972 presidential campaign for Rolling Stone magazine. And that became another book, um, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. And those three books, really, uh, Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72, are really probably the peaks of, uh, of Thompson's uh, career. I mean, he writes all of them before 1975. He, he you know, he, he remains a kind of, uh, you know, he continues to write and, and his celebrity in many ways was burnished um, in the succeeding decades. Um, but, but really, in some ways, the, those three books are kind of what people hold up as his, as his signature contributions. And it, it, it starts with McWilliams in some ways. You know, now there was a series of opportunities that, that uh, Thompson was alert to and that he capitalized on. And he, he ends up um, sort of shrugging off the new journalism that he, that he was um, showing in, in the Hells Angels book and, and creates this new mode called gonzo journalism um, that really is basically just associated with him and his work. But I argue in the book, which comes out in January, that, uh, you know, he was probably the most distinctive American voice in the second half of the 20th century. That has a lot to do with his satire, with his gift for invective, you know, all the things that, that McWilliams really avoided. You know, McWilliams, by comparison, was really a straight shooter. But Thompson was funny, you know, and he found a much larger audience um, with his sort of irreverent, spectacular style that, you know, wouldn't have been natural for, for McWilliams. I think McWilliams's book holds up very well, uh, his books and his, his body of work as a whole, in some ways better than Thompson's. But there was a way in which, you know, Thompson's feeling for the zeitgeist was such, and his incredible comic timing and phrase making you know, just ended up reaching more people and making a much bigger splash. Well, I can't wait to read that book when it comes out. And I hope that you'll consider being on New Books Network uh, to talk about it with me again. Um, I just want to really thank you for your time today and for being on the show. I enjoyed the conversation so much. Uh, so thank you, Peter. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. 